Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the January 30, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, Tekle Wola Michel, academic and neighbor, will be my guest for the whole hour. An Eritrean national who's made America as great as ever has a book coming out soon on post-liberation Eritrea and is ready to surface with some privileged insights from the continent so disparaged by the man occupying the White House. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the whole hour is Tekle Wolda Michel, sociologist at Chapman University, with us to talk about his latest works, including one to be released later this May or June of this year, entitled Post-Liberation Eritrea, The Rise and Fall of the African Renaissance State, published by Indiana Press. In addition, he offers his profound and rare understanding of the international refugee crisis, crises, I'm going to put in plural. They're, they're blowing up all over the continent, all over the globe. Prior to this appointment at Chapman, Tekla's taught at Redlands University. University, Hamilton College, University of Hartford, University of Gesira, Gesira, Jazira, Jazira in Sudan. His research interests include immigrants and refugees, racial identity, ethnicity and nationalism, language and public policy. His extensive list of publications includes his book. Becoming Black American, Haitians and American Institutions in Evanston, Illinois. He co-edited an issue of the American Sociologist on Racial Diversity and Becoming a Sociologist. To his work, appearing in numerous and journals and other books, he's adding a special issue of the African Identities Journal on Asmara, the capital Eritrea, to be published by Rutledge Press. He teaches social theory integrative seminar, race and ethnic relations, and African society. Tekle completed his Bachelor's of Arts at Addis Ababa University and his P- Master's and Ph.D. at Northwestern University. He joins me in studio today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Tekle. You're welcome. It's a genuine privilege today. Long awaited. Thanks for coming on. First, if we could give everybody a chance, since uh, I, there's an adage I, uh, I, I actually... I go back to from time to time is war is God's way of teaching Americans geography. So there's not a war situation, not between us and Eritrea, but we're coming at a deficit of an appreciation of its geography. Just a real quick sort of summary so people place the country on the African continent and we'll move into some of the the leadership dynamics and its sort of history that way for after you set us up with where we are geographically, demographically. I, ironically, I, I think people would not know about Eritrea, but America had uh, an American station since 1943 in my hometown in Asmara up to 1997. Wow. Uh, it was a spying information communication center all over the Middle East, all the way to Vietnam War, but it wasn't publicly known, but over almost a thousand American soldiers were stationed there. So... Uh, and they had a radio station, a thriving radio station. Uh, they were in lived in a compound, so there wasn't that much interaction. But um, American 
uh, uh, operatives and secret people who run the secret organizations know about Asmara and Eritrea. It's just the general public doesn't. This so, has been part of American interest in the Horn of Africa. It had a base right in my hometown and country so, called Eritrea. Eritrea is in the northeast of Africa. It used to be an Italian colony. The people are similar and identical to the people in Sudan and Ethiopia, but colonialism separated them, cut them off, and established a colony called Eritrea. And this was the Italians in 1889, and were there for over 50 years. Uh, That is in 1941. The British defeated the Italians, and the British occupied it for 10 years, from 1941 to 1952. Uh, And then uh, the United Nations uh, was already established, and they didn't know what to do with the ex-colony of Italy, and they decided to to set up uh, what we call federation. And uh, at that time, Haile Selassie was the king of Ethiopia, and he couldn't understand what federation was. After all, Ethiopia was an empire, so Eritrea was federated to an empire under Haile Selassie. And lo and behold... Oh, and one moment about Haile Selassie, he sort of seated the kind of cult figure that sort of set the table for the cult figure to follow after 1993, in a sense. Well, he is... um, hmm. Uh, uh, that's a long story. Oh, yeah. uh, and you told me about academics that we have to keep it short. But it's uh, part of the culture of the society is that uh, there's always a one strong man and he tends to come to power and then he becomes absolute lu- ruler. So Haile Selassie was an absolute ruler and he was a monarch. He was a dictator, and we had a series of them. And Isaias Afwerki, who is also the king of Eritrea, if you want to call him a king, is a similar mode of absolute control. So Afwerki, A F W E R K I. So everybody can yeah. hear that. Although he calls him himself president, I think uh, he's more like a monarch. Wow. <laughs> um, then it makes sense that this is a long tradition in the area that one singular person becomes dominant and submits the entire population under his control. So Haile Selassie was the emperor of Ethiopia. So this is part of the larger culture in the Horn of Africa, how you come to power and stay in power. Uh, so uh, Eritrea is a, a colony surgically cut off from its surrounding by colonial administration. And after 1952, it was federated with Ethiopia. Uh, and, and then for 10 years, it was a federal arrangement, and little by little, Haile Selassie, Emperor Haile Selassie, encroached onto the federation and just says he sees no difference between federation and uh, full unity and integrated, and he integrated Eritrea, in a sense, eliminated the federation. And that's when the National Liberation Front, called ELF, started for independence of Eritrea or self-determination of Eritrea, which lasted from 1961 to 1991. After 30 years of guerrilla warfare, the Eritrean um, nationalist liberation won the struggle and liberated Eritrea, quote-unquote, and uh, the nationalist front turned into a government, the government of Eritrea, the state of Eritrea. And the president elected, chosen by the party, by the front was Isaiah Safwerki, who has been 
the president of the country since since then, since 1993 to um, to to until now, uh, between 1991 and 1993, it was de facto independent in 1993. But de jure uh, independence was 1993 because uh, they had to conduct a referendum, and the UN monitored the referendum, and 99% of the population said they want independence, and that's what it became officially independent and a member of the UN. And when, when irony was double-downed from 1993 on, the, there's a constitution, yes. but there's never been... Implemented. Never, it's never been implemented. There's, no, there's never been an election. And I'm just one step back with Afwerk. Afwerk? Isaias Afwerk. That his training, I mean, I can't, can't think of a more hardened kind of military ruler than a guy who learned it all in China in the 1960s. I think the China link is very important. Many people underestimate it, but I think that's where they, the leaders of Eritrea learn about guerrilla warfare about secret party, how to maintain power, how to keep people under strict control, and how to succeed. And so the method of guerrilla warfare that succeeded for Mao and the Chinese uh, nationalist movement succeeded in Eritrea as well. It's hit and run. You tire them out. You build your base in the countryside. You support the countryside, you give them services, they come to you, and finally, little by little, you weaken the enemy, and then you surround them in the city, and then you beat them, finally. And it's worked long term, and all the Mao's slogans were used in the Eritrean national struggle. Did you recognize them at the time, as Maoist? Oh, they identified themselves. It was a call to be leftist in the 1970s. You could see, I mean, you could see that. Coming. Oh, no, there's no question that the Eritrean Nationalist Front was part of the left uh, liberation fronts globally. They had affiliation with the Palestinian Liberation Front, with the, um, with the South African, with um, the Angolan, the Mozambican, uh, the Omani, uh, global. You know, the world has changed since the neoliberalism came about in 19, the, since the end of the Berlin Wall, 18, uh, 1989. Uh, before that, the world was much more accepting of nationalist fronts who espoused what they called socialists. Uh, social uh, socialist uh, uh, uprisings two, uprisings a two stage revolution instead of going through the capitalist revolution one can really uh, use a national liberation front to become a way of gaining power but also development and achieve uh, progress as they call it at that time so it was an acceptance so what happened to the national the tragedy of Eritrea is the national front comes to power and the world changed around them George Bush had uh, with his uh, neoliberal Daddy Bush, yeah, no, the younger Bush, yeah, the the, 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 the older Bush, yes, the first uh, George Bush came to power, and the whole idea of neoliberalism came, and then the Eritreans had to adjust to the language of neoliberalism, market policy, and open up, and so they tried to embrace it, but they really didn't have that culture in the Nationalist Front. They were No just, scaffold to put, yeah. put that together. So for properly. six, seven years, they stayed within that mode, but then they got an opportunity, which they took advantage of, and that is the border war between Ethiopia and Eritrea ignited in 1998. And from 1998 onwards, for two years, there was a war, and then they went back to the guerrilla style of ruling. It gives them a chance to do what they knew best, and that is full control, running it, everything, and no pretense of liberalism, democracy, and that's when they 
the constitution was written during that time of neoliberal openness and then shelved it and never looked it again. I'm going to remind listeners in greater and quicker intervals in this interview so that everybody knows who's giving us this incredible insight. My guest for the whole hour is Tekle Wildemichel. He's a sociologist at Chapman University with a book out soon called post-liberation Eritrea, and he's talking now about where the the transition from uh, Eritrea splitting away from Ethiopia and where the strongman Afwerki has, uh, with his his uh, (laughs) button-down sort of Aesthetic. Maoist sort of aesthetic uh, sort of background has been able to bring this top-down regime down uh, on every single constituent of the country. Yeah, I should, you know, yes. he's a complex person. Yeah. And I can, I, I feel I understand him. Uh, I think the point is, and we don't have that much different in background. I mean, I knew where he grew up. I grew up in the same neighborhoods he knew he grew up. I didn't know oh, him. Oh, that right? He, wow. He's older than me slightly, but uh, I knew about him and I, I knew about his you know, he's surrounding his family. So I'm not, um, uh, he's a complex and nuanced character. Uh, you cannot just say bad and good. He's just a product of the Nationalist Liberation Front, a product of r- the region, a product of the struggles of third world <laughs> movements. And uh, he is hardened by the struggle of the Nationalist Front. He is very disciplined, very well organized, and uh, he carried the nationalist war to success, but through really harsh disciplinary method of almost Maoist, Marxist, Leninist discipline, strong. And they read the books. It served them perfectly. They would, nobody would have won unless that organization, that movement, which became the biggest and the most powerful nationalist liberation, which is well wow. called EPLF, Eritrean Liberation Front, uh, Eritrean People's Liberation Front. Uh, it was the biggest and the most organized nationalist movement in Africa and he was fighting the biggest army in Africa that was in Ethiopia led by Mengistu who was also another socialist so you can see that the language of socialism was the language of change progress at the time so the Ethiopian government was also socialist the Eritreans were also socialists they were fighting for control and who is more socialist than another one so the Mengistu Haile Mariam was the other socialist and military leader he got help from Cuba Russia Angola Angola Libyans were also involved and wow. so and Yemen to fight the Eritreans and the Eritreans survived and beat Mengistu and defeated them so the process of the guerrilla struggle hardened them these are still fighters and they are still in power and they have been continuing that process unfolding as we see in history so i'm i'll go for at a moment from uh, distinguishing between that the nomenclature of those those fighters and then the, the those that are part of the conscription but i just was curious afwerki what kind of a public speaker is he is he pretty effective or is he doing this all through sort of institutional manipulation to maintain control? He gives interviews and he talks long, long, like Castro. Oh, okay. For that hours and hours through hours. And if but you does have, he speak well, though? I mean, he can hold he it. Can, but, but he is current, but it's all litany of showing off his knowledge of the world. Uh, that he's well read. Obviously, he reads a lot, and then okay. he's synthesizing them in his head. But he have to have patience to sort it out. 
that this I wish he writes them rather than use the radio interviews to 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 tell us what he knows. So to explain everything that he's not blame he's not to be blamed for what Eritrea is. Essentially it boils down to all kinds of enemies we have. We're fighting left and right from outside, from inside, and what do you expect? This is what we are because we're surrounded by enemies. Very conspiratorial, very suspicious of external forces. Again back to the guerrilla mind and that helped him it doesn't work after liberation. That is the world is changed, but he hasn't changed or adjust his thinking. And I think what Eritrea needed was the guerrilla warfare ended. It needed a new set of leaders and not continue the same mindset. But the same people are still in charge. But nobody was groomed to take over after that. I mean, there's it's only the guerrillas that have the sort yeah. of the the power hold on the country. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, there are a lot of people who are working. There, that's and we'll get to them because uh, who where, are working in the Ethiopian hope. government and Eritreans in diaspora. There are a lot of people who could have helped him, and he would have let to go and civilian population. But I think this is a hindsight. At that time, yeah. everybody was so happy the war ended. I and many others embraced them. We said, what can we do to help you? You should ruin the system because you sacrifice. Who are we? He had capital like crazy. Lots of political capital. That is a lot of cultural capital, social capital, um, feeling guilt. The amount of guilt we felt, those who were not in the guerrilla warfare, felt guilty that we survived and a lot of our friends and comrades and peers and... Uh, family members died and sacrificed and these are the few who came to witness that's the way we saw it and we said now you can do whatever we want we are not going to put the reins on you just 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 welcome home Uh, you know our mothers came and on the streets and said our children are back crying hugging them kissing them the welcoming was amazing it's just like festival for so many days when they arrived so the joy the uh, such the the embrace people didn't expect them to come back to, we thought they were going to all die, die off and be wiped out by the powerful uh, the biggest army in africa which was the ethiopian army and they came through and then to see them alive and they they came to witness who died and who survived and uh, you know like how many thousands 60,000 at least officially uh, was stated by the Eritrean government but I think more than that people estimate 250,000 people might have died overall in the Eritrean nationalist war uh, and we don't even have accounts for the Ethiopian side so this is a big big deal so I think that whole scenario of death and sacrifice and war has worn people out and people were just enjoying the little piece they had and that's really why nobody was prepared what was going to come so the freedom fighters that's a term and i i cannot were, yeah. i could not pronounce the term there's the freedom fighters which are not a word that is used when the conscription type of individual is brought up in the conscription is now it's like an enslaving Okay. Military you see, duty. What we have to understand, this is really very crucial. Yes. And that is, once they start running Eritrea, the guerrilla fighters who became government, who became government officials, they took, you know, all of these guerrilla fighters became generals, ministers, directors, and they took over. One of the things that people don't realize is Eritrea is small. 
its resources are limited. And there's five million there. Up, there almost. are five million now. Uh, and the diaspora are, is maybe how many? Like a million? It's possible. It's Maybe. possible. Okay. Uh, adding, adding up all those in the Middle East and elsewhere. So here is a, case, a nation in the in the Red Sea coast, right near, uh, um, you know, facing the Saudi Arabia, south of Sudan, the north and northeast of Ethiopia. So dry most of the land. Its only resources as a gateway state that is, it lets uh, there's a port of Masawa, which is in the Red Sea, which is a very important port for security and uh, you know for transport and then also of course Israel is very concerned about the Red Sea not becoming under control of Arab Muslim countries. So here is Eritrea in a key area that is geopolitically important, but resource-wise it's poor. So what the government found is empty. There's nothing for them to distribute or run the country, and it was in shambles after 30 years of neglect. So they became stern and, uh, and started saying, we're going to go and work without money. We're going to work without uh, having good life for ourselves. What they did not estimate is they're going to have children, and the children are going to grow up, and their children are not guerrilla fighters. But what they decided is, oh, they're growing up, we have a solution for it. Let's pass on our tradition of warrior, not the tradition of national fighters. Mm -hmm. They're going to be, wa they call themselves, uh, they call themselves, uh, uh, the children are warsai. They are... Um, the the ones that um, that started the guerrilla warfare, their children are Warsa, Yikalo, Yikalo. They call themselves Yikalo. Okay. The Yikalo are the ones that fought the National Front. They made it happen. That's what Yikalo means. They made a revolution happen. Their national liberation and independence happen. Yikalo, Warsa is the children. They kind of use that. They use language of empowerment, music, dance to inspire the young generation who are their own kids to serve in the National Front. That is where the Warsai dark conscription becomes because they started to make them work for two years, ostensibly for three years, to do national service military training so that they can have the tradition of guerrilla warfare. But in, And they train them how to shoot, how to fight, how to do this. And they combine it with classroom instructions for one year. And then uh, they thought that the kids will embrace this. It's but, couches and education they're offering. Yeah. Okay. But, but the, the kids, the children are growing up and they say they're, they're not guerrilla fighters. They never volunteered. The big difference, they misunderstood. They volunteered to fight for the guerrilla warfare. Nobody pushed. Of course, the war was going on with Ethiopia. But one can go abroad, not fight, uh, stay home, or fight. They went and chose to become guerrilla fighters. Their children were conscripted because obligatory national service. To the leaders in Eritrea, they didn't see this as something wrong. They just continuity, and they want to make sure that their legacy is continued. And their children are going to keep on the legacy. They thought they found a solution. Yeah. What they didn't realize is this is not a solution. It's really externalizing their problems. And the kids, the young people are going to grow up and say, at some point, this is endless. So there will be a resistance from that. And they started it's resisting. And okay. the only solution they found acceptable because the government controls everything and the spy system is so powerful to escape and run to neighboring countries. And they went to Ethiopia. That's a paradox. Oh, that because is. Eritreans had, that is a paradox. And then they can go to Sudan 
and then they saw this is very complicated that's why i that's why will slow here. down that's why you're here yes i'll slow down because they go to ethiopia the paradox i want to come back to yes uh, and then they go to sudan and then they have relatives those of us who were uh during the whole guerrilla warfare were abroad we went home with of course we were enthusiastic with money with cameras with videotapes with clothes with gifts to all our family members what do you think a person looking at me who have been there all the time between me and them is that I became diaspora and they don't. I have cash in my pocket and throwing it around at will and eating well and being so generous and gift giving. What do you think goes in that child's mind? A person who's my age looking at me. Well, they're gonna. Well, you're a hollow participant. I'm saying abroad. I came as empowered. They right. would want to do the same for right, them. Right, right, right. But if I mean, not for me, for them, for their children. Not resentment, but ha- promise. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a way out. So yeah. okay. they start saying, I'm going to go abroad. Be okay. like them. Yeah. Why not? Come it's back and then, then and people yeah. respect you. You When you come with resources, the government treated them well. It gave them land. It gave them, they go and travel to the best place in Eritrea and they feel ownership of the land. Here are guerrilla fighters who have been fighting all their life and they don't even have decent home. And then the uh, diaspora goes and buys home given land because they gave to the government or support their uh, initiative for the veterans or those who lost their families and then you are treated like a first-class citizen so there's a hierarchy of citizenship created by the government and and the local people are the least valued because they don't have resources because the country is poor and then the ones who are externally like the ones like me and in europe and in italy because american economy is so powerful even the few cash I can have is so much in Earth. Goes yeah. a long way. Yeah. yeah, I can be a middle class there and look great, even though it's really compared to what is middle class here, it may not seem like a lot. So there, it's a very dense article. One, uh, one of them in your book, Post Liberation Eritrea, that that's yeah. still a work in progress. That, but one of your contributors was talking about that that remissions is subject to this kind of gatekeeper spigot that the government has. So there's like, there's another lever of repression there, is how much of the resources can come back into the country. Well, as I said, Eritrea is poor, and it doesn't have resources. Now they are uh, exporting gold, but we don't, we have never seen how much, where it is, who gets it. Uh, there are Canadian companies that are operating in Eritrea. We don't know where the money is. Uh, the promise right. of Eritrea's military has a lot of uh, natural resources. A lot of people have claimed it can be self-sufficient. You know, in 1948, when Eritrea was fate was being decided, that was a crucial point. Saying, can Eritrea be independent? That's why they federated it. Partly, the UN is they doubted. The British doubted that Eritrea could be self-sufficient, and. Uh, now it's haunting us because it really is a question. Really, a question we haven't been able to answer. Uh, uh, it's really too small to have resources of its own, and it's only as a gateway. A gateway means a door. A door is to link to the rest of the world. So Masawa is a key place in Eritrea. The most important part of Eritrea is Masawa, the city of Masawa. That is the. Uh, I, I think that's crucially important because it's a port to enter to where to the hinterland in Africa, East Africa, mostly Ethiopia, maybe Eastern Sudan, Southern, Northeast Sudan, but mostly Ethiopia. If you have a war with Ethiopia, if you are cut off after the, you know, the border war in 1998, you're talking about the gate is shut. What do you do with a door that is shut? 
if it is a door to enter into the area. Well, you tunnel away somewhere else where nobody's looking. Get out fast. Exactly, because it's poor. If it's a gate to enter through the Red Sea and open to Ethiopia, if you shut that, the market is shut off. The people, wh- what is that port for? If it is the only resource, the most important resource in Eritrea is a port. And if you shut that down, where is the money going to come? So that's where diaspora come in. Right. Diasporas send money, 2% income tax. They want to show you, they want to see your income tax to the United States so that they know your income and then they will determine 2% out of that. That's a lot of money and the government relies on that for its revenue. That is why diaspora are treated better. The diaspora in the Eritrean news media, not only they talk about the local events, they talk a lot about diaspora as they are local. But technically, it's a paradox, though, that that there is they're not a, a, res- a restriction yeah. on people leaving the country. But once they're gone, their money is welcome back to stabilize so, the economy. So in a way, the state has become a, an active participation, participatory in this whole game of diaspora because they they send their best singers, their best artists, their best uh, um, speakers to WOW to keep the diaspora focused on Eritrea so they raise funds. So the message they send is so confusing for a local person who is in Eritrea. Wow, this is the only way they will respect you and you will get the status you deserve and you can come back home. They're, part of the migration is a repressive and endless national service where you don't have salary to have a family to have decent home so that even if you sincerely believe in the national liberation front and also in the government they're not giving you decent income to stay in addition you see those who run away come back and given a red carpet to enter and treated as though they really are the ones that are valued or given citizenship they are the real citizenship that the state wants so I would do what the refugees are doing. Makes sense. And they went, and they went to Ethiopia. This is one of the <laughs> unnerving things the government and everybody gets angry because the girl of their parents were fighting Ethiopia, and their kids are going to Ethiopia for refuge. So, right, right. And, and uh, I grew up in the time when Eritrea was part of Ethiopia, so I didn't have to go through refuge as a refugee to Ethiopia. We were very highly respected in Ethiopia. Uh, we were very welcomed, and we and the Ethiopians, to give them their credit, they were not uh, in day-to-day relationship. They treated us as, as equal as citizens. So it was the unfinished business of colonialism in Eritrea that started the Nationalist Front, because all African nations that were by colonized by the Europeans became independent. And Eritrea didn't become independent. And so that global link, which was the world system Eritrea connected, became a basis for saying that we could do better than being part of a feudal Ethiopia. That's the foundation from which the Nationalist Front started to push because they thought that they have a better way of dealing with the crisis of economic development and poverty in Ethiopia by being, they were already, already Italian colonialism, the Italians have established industrial base. Asmara, for all those who don't know, is the center of 
modernist architecture. The Italians invested a lot. It's highly beautiful uh, designs. Colonial. Colonial, uh, colonial uh, designs that are art, art deco, uh, unique uh, buildings that architects to, uh, to, to their imagination, use their imagination to build wonderful buildings and all of those indicate. And also there was a lot of industrial investment because the Italians really wanted to resettle in Eritrea. They were going to bring poor Italians and resettle them. That's all the colon- Italian colonialization that was, the plan was. But, but it never. It never took place, but they d- there were a lot of... It was starting. There were uh, agro-industry businesses started by the Italians. Okay. They had, uh, uh, you know, tomatoes, uh, <laughs> cotton, peanuts. They had a lot going on, uh, but it didn't, uh, it didn't materialize as much because the Italian aim, uh, history is very complicated. The Italian aim was not only Eritrea, but Ethiopia. and Right, the whole northern. Uh, Ethiopia is a big country, very fertile, very um, uh, naturally, you know, a lot of rain in the water. So they thought that they can resettle people all the way to Ethiopia. And they were defeated in, 1996, in 1896 in the Battle of Adwa by the king of Ethiopia, who... By <laughs> interestingly, oh. I want to. Uh, interestingly, he signed off Eritrea to the Italians, saying you can have it as a colony. I think many people that forget that he, an Ethiopian little ruler, signed off saying yes, you can have this colony because he wanted peace. Of course, the Italians were more powerful and they would come and beat him maybe if they reorganized. So he just made a deal. So that's also the creation of Eritrea. So the Ethiopian argument that you're one of us is, in some ways, uh, uh, suspicious because. Uh, their leader signed it off, and that's where the beginning of the Eritrea as a colony, which was externally controlled, run by Italy from Italy and not from Africa, started. And this whole thing is a colonial mess. We have we are living the nightmare produced by colonialism. And so Afwerki can just selectively dip into all of these this legacy to he strengthen it. his case. He's yeah. got like he's got the highest hand to play. There's year so many after layers. year after year. Well, yes. I just want to give listeners an opportunity to appreciate Human Rights Watch ranks Eritrean human rights record as one of the worst in the world, and there is competition at the bottom. So, I mean, how how bad? The human rights issue, again, nuanced analysis is needed. <laughs> uh, the reason is, these were guerrilla fighters who were fighting the National Liberation Front. And we're in ruthless. the 80s and 70s, they were heroes. And that method of Marxist-Leninist was embraced by a lot of countries around the world. And then the new liberal movement started, and then human rights becomes a way of beating these countries to pieces, saying, you are not following the human rights. I think um, people who are pushing for human rights... Uh, are um, are right in pushing for human rights, but they don't appreciate, you know, a guerrilla fighter who had fought for 30 years, 40 years, is not going to turn into a liberal who values civil society very well. They didn't get their liberal arts degree on the way. That, so <laughs> yeah, they have no clue that. what we're talking about. No. Actually, it's wasted because... Uh, and also, I have to really criticize the Eritreans in diaspora, and that is okay. none of them are liberals either. None of them know how to produce democracy. I have seen many organizations run by Eritreans. They don't run in a democratic way. I haven't seen anyone <laughs> find me an Eritrean who's a democrat, and I'll, uh, I'll, really? uh, I'll pay um, all my salary to the station. Uh, the reason I say that is um, wow. they don't participate, in, they're in the West, but they don't participate in the Western 
political culture. The culture from the Horn of Africa, which is repressive, uh, a father knows best, patriarchal, still continues in diaspora. And they spend most of their time hanging around with one another in Starbucks and elsewhere. And they haven't integrated into uh, the civic culture in the West, in America, in Europe. And I wish they participate in the politics of America, in the politics of Europe, to know how democracy works. And then they can help their own brothers. But as long as they maintain we are Democrats in paper, in conversation with one another, without understanding how really what democracy means is respecting the individual, respecting the young, respecting the wife, respecting the family, uh, individuals as such that they have in inalienable right to dignity and respect. And you can't just impose your will on anybody, listening to others' point of view, uh, allowing artists to express themselves, writers to express themselves, people freedom to be who they are, whatever they want to be, and that is okay because they are respected as individuals. doesn't exist. And so a lot of people have this top-down what should be, and I think that idea that Isaias has so top-down yeah. It's still in the diaspora and in all the opposition movements in Eritrea. It still persists because they have ideas better than anybody else. So it is only when you respect the other's point of view, you become a democrat. You move on. That, so it's, it's more dismal than I thought in preparation for this, is that it's dismal in country. I don't have much and hope of the, the diaspora, diaspora either. Because yes. that's where I was going to try to hope we could hang some... Uh, hang our hat on some of the diaspora contributing in, fact, in, in, fact, a, what in keeps, light and fashion, but this is not... In fact, what keeps uh, Isaias going is many people believe that he is better than the opposition <laughs> because the opposition have ethno-nationalist point okay. of view, wow. religious-based point of view. They want to make Eritrea based on ethno-nationalist. It could be religion, it could be ethnicity, it could be language, and they want to create their own alternative pluralistic, but another top-down system. Still top down. I want to let all the listeners who've just joined us know that for this whole hour, it's my pleasure to have on Tikle Wolda Michel. He's a sociologist at Chapman University. He's also a neighbor not far from the station, and he has a book soon to be released by Indiana University Press. It's called Post-Liberation Eritrea, and I'm sure you can all appreciate all this nuance, we're n we wouldn't have gotten it anywhere if we didn't have the privilege of, of Tekele bringing this all out. So there's a couple of, let's just say, let's, uh, there's some lighter moments. And the, the, the lighter moments also, though, present nuance that we, we must appreciate and where it certainly gets lost in some of our hardening of our tribal kinds of uh, conflicts here internally in, in our country. So this resourcefulness comes off in that we, we talked with Victoria Bernal about what the cyber kind of connections are with some very interesting kind of dialogues going on there and you mentioned in uh, your, one of your chapters in post-liberation Eritrea the characteristics of the Shida Shida, yeah. Shida and we'll talk about those plastic sandals and then there's the jokes the jokes are so so clever. They're so resourceful in getting the message across. They have to be a subversive measure to sort of validate and connect with everybody that can be the only kind of antidote to the dismal world in, of civic life or the lack of it in Eritrea. Okay, uh, I think we need to be careful because I am uh, focusing on the state. I'm focusing on the front, which became the government, which became the elites. But 
I think uh, the the uh, the other there's also the other Eritrea, which is the social life, the yeah. family life, the community life, the friendship. A lot of humor, a lot of fun, a lot of friendship, a lot of love, uh, a lot of uh, camaraderie. And so uh, even when I went to Eritrea in 2007, that was the last time I was that there. That was my question. I was going to ask. Uh, and uh, I could listen to women are making coffee and drinking and we are chatting and we can see the president uh, the other uh, media would come in and w- the women would say shut up you <laughs> you stupid you don't know what you're talking about when they were talking about uh, Ethiopia and others uh, attacking enemies uh, and they were making jokes they were laughing there's a lot of trust among community people I mean everybody is every time joking having fun family life weddings are going on children are born uh, when people die there's a lot of love and affection it's a communal life is still alive and well. I, when I talk to my sister, I talk to her for hours. We're joking all the time. My brothers are still there and we joke all the time. So the system that wants to transform Eritrea is the cause of all the misery for the young people. But internally, the people are have been there for a long time. They will survive and stay beyond Isaias and his regime. They have seen many leaders and they are resourceful. They are... Um, the family life. Family is really the center. There's a piece of uh, a number of writings that have come out saying that Isaias has destroyed the Eritrean family. That is just an, uh, an article actually published in a major journal, which is just Doesn't a disappoint- this is just disappointment to me because yeah. our strength is family. And the reason why refugees are leaving the country uh, is because their family is supporting them. Uh, and the family network is working. It's not because it's dysfunctional. It's really functional to the point that they are saving the young people from the brutal um, life they relieve and they send in the money and help them escape. Unfortunately, the world is not accepting them as refugees. Therefore, they are dying in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Lampedusa story is about Eritrean story. The Israelis trying to... Yeah. Uh, Kick them out. I want to add something about the Israeli case, if you give me a chance. Yeah, we will. Yeah, that's part of it. Do you want to do that now while we're here? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Uh, the inherent contradiction about Israeli, yes. uh, what Israeli calls infiltrators, is that they have called Eritreans infiltrators. There are like around 40,000 refugees in Israel, and Israel wants to send them to Uganda and also to Rwanda. Or and they have the jail option. That's, or how, jail that's how tough or they're making They may end up going back to Ethiopia because Ethiopia really is... Uh, uh, we have a f- affinity with Ethiopia. Ethiopian and Eritreans are really historically they are the same people, except they were separated by colonialism and divided. And the colonial impact is really still continuing. But to go back to the Israeli case, yes. is Israel is trying to send them now, right now. The irony is this, and this is a very interesting irony and really a uh, paradox. In 1943, a peace was re- uh, the British had Eritrea under their control. One of their proposals was what to do with Eritrea, disposal of the ex-Italian colony. And they were trying to uh, bring Israelis and resettle them because the world didn't accept Israel and every nation didn't want them anywhere. They were going to be resettled in Eritrea. That was one of the proposals. And the British administrator at that time, I have a copy of it uh, because I got it from the British library, uh, public library, Q. Who's the guy? Q Garden. Huh? The, the British the British administrators were talking this I, is a secret no, that okay. I, they wrote and I have the uh, um, the manuscript in but my the hand person, the, huh? the British person the they are administrators the local administrators Just a lot of them okay yeah they're That's, sending one another okay. secret telegrams and stuff all that is in my hands okay and in that what they do is uh, how do how do we assess this 
Oh, Eritrea is, uh, this area is not suitable for Europeans because it's too hot. This Eritrea is not suitable because it's heavily, d- densely populated. Oh, and they see every option and say, oh, it doesn't seem like it's going to work for the Israelis. Unfortunately, the climate in the highland is the best for a European settlement, but it's heavily settled, so we can't have it. The lowland is too hot, so we can't settle them. So they didn't do it for humanitarian reasons. They did it because it wasn't convenient. Otherwise, we would have Israel in, would be would in Eritrea. Wow. And there was also other plans for Uganda in 1993 when the Zionist movement was going on. Their leader, Herzl, his name, right. was thinking of resettling and uh, creating Israel in Uganda. So, this is a, and uh, so the two places that the Israelis are planning to dispose of Eritreans as undesirable uh, are two places Uganda and Eritrea. Uh, Uganda and Eritrea are tied to Israel. Is really a people who were themselves refugees are now uh, rejecting a people who came to them as uh, to, to get a refuge. And Israel should be an oasis of people for whose suffering they should be sympathetic because they compassion suffer. is what we expect from Israel, not uh, acting like, uh, um, re- you know, like, uh, like on a, a nationalist pers- kind of regime. Yeah. Yeah, and in a sense, yep. yeah, and uh, you would accept that the uh, ethno-nationalism of Israel would not override their humanitarian obligation because at some point they needed help and they could have been in Eritrea and taking our, you know, the land of the people from whom now they are rejected. Well, let's use that ethno-nationalism takeaway to go to the way in which the man occupying the White House has disparaged the entire African continent, and I know you wanted to take that up, that general topic. I would say uh, Donald Trump is ethno-nationalist. Ethno-nationalism doesn't mean just ethnic. It means race too. It's really my tribe is better than your tribe. It's the core of it is tribalism. Ethno-nationalism tries to push saying we as a group, we are separate, we are different, we are unique. And I'm going to... And we're better. We're better. And I'm going to be... I'm superior to you. And so... He is pushing it, and it appeals to many people. It's really powerful because it says to you, you are select, and I can exclude the rest of the people, and you are. You don't have to do anything. It's really by ascription, by birth. You are superior. What a, what a pleasure it gives to a lot of people who feel disempowered at these times where the economic situation is dire, where the political situation is dire, and you need something that gives you. Identity is really central to all who we are. Identity gives us status. Identity gives us a uh, name. Identity gives us a feeling of camaraderie with others. And when others are saying, you are better than others, without really doing anything, well, wow, Trump, is, payoff. Yeah. Trump is doing it? that. And he is basing, Americans are facing economic crisis. The world economy is changing. The American power is not as much as it used to be in terms of economic power. There are more and better competitors, China, India. Uh, Brazil, Europe is uni- uniting, and hopefully Africa will unite. That's the only solution for Africa, by the way. Yeah. All these uh, nation states is useless. I think Africans have to come together and unite and see that the world is, that America is 50 nations united. Europe is uniting and Africa has to unite if it, will, if it wants to matter in global affairs. Otherwise, we'll would just be struggling as small nations trying to <laughs> make ends meet. They have to be bold, Africans. They have to go to that direction. But to go back to Trump, Trump is really, really um, 
tapping into that and really unfortunate. Unfortunate, he can call whatever he wants to Africans. It's not going to affect them. As I said, my family are didn't even know that he said it. They're oh, is that right? He's not their president. He's not, he's not their president. He's, but he's putting American young, I have two daughters who travel all over the, the map uh, in Africa and, oh, uh, and they're growing up. They are already post-college post, post level. I want them to be treated with, as hosts. And Americans are really respected all over Africa. They're treated as guests. They ha- a lot of people admire them for their uh, openness, sincerity, willingness to try anything. Wow. And all that may go away. For the young people who are right now, uh, travel abroad, uh, volunteering, a lot of young people, the new generation of American youth, I'm really, I, I love them. They're really good. They are, they love Africa. They love going to Africa uh, and third world countries. And they serve. They are well, genuinely, so, so, genuinely yeah. wanting to connect people to people. And here is a guy in the White House and subverting that whole uh, initiative the young generation is doing by insulting nations and shutting the door. He's a gatekeeper, and this gatekeeper is shutting the door. We were talking about gatekeeper in Eritrea. This gatekeeper is also in the United States. Doesn't know how irresponsible he has become and endangering a relationship that could build a better relation between Africans and Americans. Instead, he's talking nonsense, whatever comes to his mind. You can think whatever you want, but when you're a president, you have to be careful what you say, because... What you say is policy. As a leader, if you say something, it's, it's policy. making policy, no matter what platform you're using. Yeah. So when I read about these lovely, subversive kinds of communication forms, like the, the jokes that are developed in Eritrea, and I think of the lack of subtlety that our president disparaged a whole continent it must have been a real collision of your of sensibilities is that how to navigate subtly and with nuance in this kind of these witticisms shared in Eritrea, and then this thug comes out and just flattens the continent with his disparaging vulgar comments (laughs) well uh sure america is now supreme in the world the most powerful nation um has been and he can speak and he has a podium to speak from and he's male he's white he's uh upper class uh, extremely wealthy and so it it affects globally how people think about american um power and he can say whatever he wants but listen people in the horn of africa they've lived for thousands of years in that area they uh, there were moments in history when uh, the region called uh, um, now um, Eritrea and Ethiopia yes. had Aksumite kingdom and they were the most powerful nation in the world the fourth most powerful nation in the world so civilizations rise and fall uh, the people have been there you know their Christianity came to the Horn of Africa uh, in the four, uh, thir- uh, four, first uh, three, 330 the AD. Christians. Christians. Coptic Christians. So some of the disciples of Christ uh, were the first to convert the people in the Horn of Africa. When Muhammad uh, was founding his, uh, uh, his religion, uh, he was persecuted and he sent his disciples to, uh, to what is now Eritrea. At that time, it's, he calls it Habesha. And they got uh, protection, and that's why Islam survived and expanded. And uh, really? so the people, the local people, converted to Islam uh, at that time. So Christianity and Islam, Judaism was there already. 
So the three Abrahamic religions were there, and the culture, the language, uh, if you go to Ethiopia, there still remains, if you go to Eritrea, there's ancient remains. Even the city of Asmara, which I'm studying, yes. is an archaeological site. People, archaeologists are finding that there remains, and they're uncovering Adulis, which is uh, on the Red Sea, uh, also another port. Um, and so a lot, a lot. So uh, for people like us who are really historic people who have been around, uh, we know we can ride this wave of, uh, of ethno-nationalism of America, and it's unfortunate he doesn't read history. There are, there's a rise and fall of civilizations. Of course, this is a moment in history, but it's really short, 100 years of existence. We're talking about 4,000, 5,000 years. I think the Egyptians can pride themselves, the Abyssinians, the Ethiopians, uh, the Aksumites should pride themselves, the Persians should pride, the Indians should pride, you know, the Chinese. So these are really uh, ignorance, and people have inner, you know, uh, I go to Ethiopia, I go to Eritrea, I get a lot of satisfaction because Internally, these are civilizations on their own, and a lot is going on. Their food, their culture, their tradition. So he may think it's very important, but in their lives, uh, what an what 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 stupidity to call entire population. He can criticize the governments. I'm fine. He can call them any name he wants, but not the people, not no, the just, land. It was la- it was sweeping. Just, yeah. yeah. It was and and. Uh, um, it's good. I, 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 you also raised the fact uh, this actress came to Eritrea. Yeah, I mean, that, some notes <laughs> we were talking about. So uh, Tiffany Haddish, just, yeah. she just got married like the, like a couple of weeks ago. Really? I so, didn't know. And she found her father. I know I didn't know any of this, but this is why I was sniffing around here for today. So she, she tracked her father down who abandoned yeah. her family many, you know, when she was a child. So he's there sort of in a sort of a ceremony. And then Eforki is hosting her too and so she's kind of giving him even more capital like here she's like she's a list now in in hollywood again uh again i'm going to give a nuanced answer to that <laughs> like everything else is it's nuance okay uh oh hats off for tiffany okay um, i i really admire her i heard her interview on Eritrean uh tv and wonderful oh okay she needs an identity and she has been beaten down and she lived in a car while she lived in a car she lived and so to find a home she took set up an identity and connected wholeheartedly and embrace it a country that she never knew and even going to the president i don't i more power to her she, people shouldn't resent that that's not that's okay she's in the process of discovering her identity negative criticism to her is really inappropriate i just say welcome okay. welcome home great yeah. because he is uh, he may use her but i don't think people should uh should resent that i think it's good that she's willing to accept her father's home and Eritreans can feel proud that they have contributed nothing to her achievement it's just she's being gracious and visiting, but also she's getting an identity. And I'm willing that the second generation Eritreans and Ethiopians and Africans are facing America and racism is the center of it. And their people in diaspora who grew up in their home country should be gentle and kind to them because they need a place they feel at home and they should not criticize them for embracing whatever is African. Well, I need to wrap a whole lot of thoughts in one thing, last minute or two with you, is that Tiffany Haddish 
is a different kind of a, a person. She's not in the diaspora. She's like a second generation now exactly. in the U.S. So maybe she could be a force to be reckoned with in some post-Afwerki kind of regime. There's, I mean, wherever we can find it, because she's not, just, she's not of the mold that you're talking about. What the other diasporans that are sort of, you know, self, self, uh, feathering their nests with, um, you know, their in, internalized cultural life together. But maybe it's there's some odd kinds of um, alliances here to maybe see Eritrea out of this very repressive, dismal existence. Wow, really. Well, I I think the second generation, which is kids who are growing up in the America and Europe and others integrated into the system, are not the same as those who are diasporas. I was talking about. Right, right. They yeah. are. I I am very hopeful. They are socialized. Okay. They know the system. They're facing racism and ethno nationalism in America. And Eritrea to them is a home of a family they came from and it should represent that. Ethiopia should represent, Africa should represent them in a positive way. And I see a lot of hope in them, actually. They are the ones that can give us what it means to be democratic. I think they grew up as individuals, respected. A lot of them artists. Okay. Tekle, you covered more people, more time, more places than ever has been covered. And we try to be pretty pretty darn ambitious around here. Tekle Walden-Michel, thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I enjoyed it, too. Oh, it's been a remarkable time, believe me. My guest was Tekle Wolde-Michel. He's a sociologist at Chapman University, neighbor to this radio station, with a book soon to be released. Everybody keep a lookout for what he's writing, besides the, his post-liberation Eritrea, published by University Press, looking for other kinds of other work that he's doing in uh, compilations and editing books and more of his periodicals well that was my wrap but before i wrap it totally i want to just say if you're listening to us live tomorrow is a blue lunar eclipse that's tomorrow morning in the morning hit the sack early so you can catch that in the wee hours tomorrow i'm going to try my best well that's my wrap next week among other offerings we'll have jeff wasserstrom to lead us through what to expect with the fourth annual joint event presented by the humanities and law school this year's theme who do we think we are? American identity and the ideal of democracy in the 21st century. Taking place on this campus February 9th through the 10th, free and open to the public. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs>